from the NFL. We know the Browns have talent, but I'm not sold on this rookie head coach. To the NBA. Kawhi Leonard has added his name as one of the best players in basketball. Across the landscape of college football. The Pac-12 got how many teams in the top 25? And so much more. Boxing needs a Dana White. It has too many chefs in the kitchen. The stories you want. The Zeke Elliott holdout could be coming to a close. The opinions you need. LeBron is coming back with revenge on his mind. The king is back. It's Jay Wise. I keep telling y'all my last name is no joke. And Nathan Drinkard. If they don't win this game, it's a wrap. Stick a fork in them. They're done. This is a drink of wisdom. Welcome to a drink of wisdom with Jay Wise and Nathan Drinkard. I'm your host, Cody Ward. Thanks for spending some of your time with us tonight. As a reminder to all our listeners, besides being on all your favorite podcast platforms, A Drink of Wisdom is also on YouTube with each so segment available. Head on over, and if you like what you hear, we'd appreciate your subscription. What's going on, guys? Good to be back. How's it going? Yeah, I I know everybody might feel a little bit, you know, down, sad, because the last dance is over, but hey, never fear, because we are here. It's the drink, it's the beer, and it's the wisdom. Let's do it. Yeah, you heard the man. Let's talk some sports, baby. Let's roll, baby. I missed that. In episode 72, we're going to tell you which NBA dynasty deserves their next documentary, what's up with the Rooney rule in the NFL, and which quarterback is under the most pressure in 2020. Got the answers to those questions and more coming right up. But first, ESPN's 10-part documentary of Michael Jordan and Chicago Bulls did come to a conclusion on Sunday. Episodes 9 and 10 cover the infamous flu game, the backstory of Steve Kerr, and the defeat of the Utah Jazz, both in 97 and 98, to complete their second three-peat in seven years. The docuseries set records for the most viewed documentary ever on TV, and it's really easy to see why. So, Drake, what were your takeaways from the last two episodes, and did the series change your opinion on MJ and the Bulls at all? Uh, <clears throat> well, let me answer the first, first, I mean, the second end of that question first. Uh, no, it didn't. It gave me some insight, but at the end of the day, if uh, I, I came into this series thinking the, Bull, the Bulls was one of the best dynasties in the NBA, and they still was one of the best dynasties in the NBA. I came here thinking Jordan was the GOAT, and he still was considered the GOAT. So at the end of the day, the, all the documentary did was it told me some things I didn't know about the team that it did do, but it, it didn't change my mind. I, if anything, it helped myself. It helped my wife. My wife is part of the, I would say, a younger generation. And she got to see some things that she might not know about it that she was impressed with. So I thought the documentary did well as far as um, highlighting uh, Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Now, to, to my takeaways, the first one is the flu, I mean, the food poison game, you know. Um, listen, for the longest, I was under the impression that it was the flu. And then Michael Jordan hit me with the two-piece. Um, and he didn't hesitate with it. You, you heard him. He said, uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't no flu. Hey, I'm going to tell you what happened. Sit back. Have a drink. So, uh, you know, and he goes on and he, you know, he was hungry. They they went around Utah. They, they you know, before game five of the 1997 series. And they go around and they ask, you know, try to get him something to eat. It's one place open. They And it, it seems as if his trainer was trying to say they did this on purpose. He didn't say that. But he said he found it very odd that it was nowhere open but this one piece of place. And then when it, once they, you know, call in the order, five guys show up with one piece of Well, what was y'all holding? His belt? Like, five guys, what, what are we delivering? Are we doing the condominiums separate? Do we got a, a slice per person? Like, what are we doing here? So five guys showing up. 
they over here paparazzi special, TMZ special. They trying to get it, get a peek in. Hey, 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 we know Michael Jordan in there. Hey, 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 open this door. You know, all this extra stuff. You know, and his his trainer set the pizza down, and he said, "Listen, I don't feel I don't feel good about this. There's something about this that's not right." He probably didn't think that you know some fans, because I'm I don't think that Utah Jazz organization had anything to do with it. But some fans would take it that far to like po- try to poison someone. But at the end of the day, they wasn't a hundred. They wasn't hundred percent sure that this pizza was going to Michael Jordan. It could have went to uh, Steve Kerr. Like, who knows who this pizza was going to? So, I think you can reach and make your assumptions. Either way, he did get food poisoned. He woke up three in the morning throwing up left and right. You know, weak. Uh, they had to hook him up the IVs every chance they got. They wasn't sure he was going to play. But listen, this is it. Was games like this while Michael Jordan was Michael Jordan? He said, "I don't give a rip how sick I am." Hook your ball up to IB. I'm going to be on the court. You could miss me with the bull crap. I don't care if Pippen got to carry me up and down the court. I'm going to play. And that's what he did. He dropped 38. And I thought what was very interesting about this was the interview where they showed um, they, they was talking to Sloan, Jerry Sloan, after the game. And they was like, hey, <laughs> did you know Michael was sick? He was sick? No. He was sick. He looked sick to you? Did he look sick? I, I didn't notice he was sick. You know, I got a kick out of that because I would have responded the same exact way. Like, he was sick? Is that what you call sick? Well, that dude better on his sick days than I am when I'm 100% healthy. Like, it, it is what it is. So, I got a kick out of that. Uh, I'm pretty sure Michael never ate another piece of food out of Utah again. That very next year, he probably had everything flown in on, on the team plane. Uh, he didn't trust it. I don't blame him. So, I think it's very interesting because we we thought that it was the flu game, but I I really don't care what game you call it. The fact was he was sick and he dropped thirty eight, and it is what it is. That dude is a bad. I mean, think about how good you got to be. He was the best player in the world while he had food for him. Man, some people just got it, and some people just don't. Then part two, um, the Rotman Runaway part two, Mister. I got to take a break whenever I got to take it. This dude here. I'm tell you right now, he got a thirty for thirty out, but it was no his thirty for thirty is nowhere as good as the crap he pulled in this Bulls thirty for thirty. Let me tell you that right now, this dude is old thirty for thirty for some of the crap. I'm talking. How do you play a game in the finals and then decide I ain't gonna go to practice? It did. Don't even don't tell anyone. Don't tell Phil. Don't tell. Hey, and then the next time they see you, hey, hey, what did is that? Oh, he didn't show up, boss. Oh, God darn it. Let me get him on the phone. WCW Nitro. You got you got Hulk Hogan come out there. You know what I mean? Doing his thing. And he, he points over. It is, it's Dennis Robbie. Could you imagine you're at home getting ready for the NBA Finals and you look and you see your teammate coming out on WCW Nitro? You're like, this guy. What? But listen, Rodman, he said what he said. The reason it worked is because Phil knew that I was a special type of guy. He understood me. He knew I needed mental breaks. He knew I needed to do whatever I had to do off the court to help me perform 100% on the court. He Phil knew this. This is why when I say coaching matters, this is what we mean by coaching matters. 
little stuff like this that we don't pay attention to. Not every coach would have been able to handle that. But Phil knew what, who Dennis Rodman was. He knew why he had Dennis Rodman out. And listen, at the end of the day, as wild as that was, he only missed one practice. It wasn't like he was absent for a game. He missed the one practice. He came back. Phil handled it how he handled it. And he went on to play a very good rest of the series. But listen, that Dennis Rodman was off the chain. That dude there, boy, he was something else. He was, he was how you just, I don't know, you in the NBA Finals, man. And then you showed up on WCW Nitro having beers with Hulk Hogan. Outrageous. And then my third takeaway is always the what if. What if? What if, Michael Jordan said, if, if, the management had not came out before the season and said it's pretty much over. If Phil go 82 and no, it ain't happening. Um, we're not re-signing Sky. All this stuff they said, right? What if they had not said that and he was able to sell these guys on one more year? What if? They could have won seven. Seven is always better than six at the end of the day. What if we could have made that happen? And like we was talking about before the show, you know, what if? The, the big what if, I, 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 love, I love the fact that we got the what if. Because now you got people like LeBron out here chasing a ghost. Like, what if he had came back and won seven? What if he never retired the first time and they just would have went straight through? Like, they would have went from 91 to 98 straight to the... We don't know. That's why the what if is so great. Um, you know, it's, you can find arguments for both ways. If he had a state, if the team had a comeback, it was a very good chance they could have won in 1999. Now, we do have to remember that was the, the beginning of the Spurs dynasty. So would they have beaten the Spurs down the line? Maybe. We don't know. Was Jordan still good enough to carry a team over Tim Duncan carrying the team at the time with David Robinson? Maybe. We don't know. But we would never know. And that is why the what if is so great. You know, had he not played baseball, would they have won all those years? Hey, I know one person that would have loved if he had not retired, Scottie Pippen, because we wouldn't have had that 1.8 second bit in, inside the documentary, that's for sure, because he wouldn't have had to worry about it. So it's, it's a lot of what else. So, yeah, my, my three was the um, the flu game slash uh, food, food poisoning, you know, uh, the Dennis Rodman, I'm out, part two. And then, you know, what if? What if he had to stay for another year? Yeah, this, uh, to the second question, uh, the documentary really didn't change my opinion or alter anything. It just kind of reconfirms uh, preconceived notions or beliefs that you already had. Michael's a goat. This was, you can make an argument, this is the greatest dynasty we've ever seen. Probably And probably the second three-peat is more impressive than the first three. And But, for, but further down the line, uh, the Pacers – Part of this story is interesting because Michael said it himself um, outside of those Piston teams that the the uh, Bulls had to get through initially to start winning titles. Uh, he said this was the toughest team uh, that we had to play. And when you look at the totality of the Bulls dynasty, this was one of two times that they got pushed to a seventh game. And when you take when you actually go back and look at that Pacers team, I mean, they were they were fairly stacked. Mark Jackson, you know, second uh, most assist all time. Reggie Miller, we know how great he was. Chris Mullen, I mean, this was a guy who was on that 92 dream team, so you know he could play. You had Rick Smith, all seven foot four of them, just doing what he wanted to do inside. 
uh, Dale Davis, Antonio Davis, those guys, they were forces on the interior. And then, you know, you throw in Jalen Rose. Man, what a what a team they had. Oh, and you got, you know, another dude over there on the sidelines who he knew a little bit about some basketball and Larry Bird. So really no, really no surprise, and especially considering the Bulls at this point, it looked like they were starting to, you know, run on fumes with the, you know, the age, attrition, all these other things. And they got they got tested big time in that series. Um, you know, the Reggie Miller, the game winning shot he had, uh, Larry Bird on the sidelines with a stone face, like, well, yeah, we still got, you know, half a second or so. So plenty of time for Michael to ruin this for us. Almost almost happened. A double clutch uh from the left wing, almost banked it in. Pacer fans, you know, holding their breath until the very last possible moment just to make sure, okay, okay, now we got it. But you know, in the end, you still I'd still be uh, with a stone face after that game because we still got to beat them, what, two or three more times? Probably not going to happen. It didn't happen. But the Jazz series, uh, obviously we know Michael looked for every little bit of slight from the media, from other players to motivate him. And when Carl Malone won that MVP, up oh, that – well, thank you, thank you, uh, NBA voters and writers and everything. Well, you just get, the Bulls got another title right off there because you know Michael won't go let that slide, and he didn't. And the you know, the flu game, I thought it was a fascinating story. Um, that didn't know, I did not know that it was food poisoning. So that was interesting, and it it did seem a little sketchy. Um, the details they was going through, and I believe Jordan's trainer at the uh, he said in the documentary, yeah, I had a had a bad feeling about this one, man, and. For good reason, but and uh, when you look at that game five, it, it got off. Uh, Michael got off to a, a slow start. He didn't look like himself, and then there, there was a timeout that occurred at one point, and then just flipped the switch. And next thing you know, he's he's himself. And yeah, Jer Jerry Sloan had like what two moments in this documentary? I thought they were both hilarious. Like two post game pressers, and it's like, yeah, he. I guess I'm the only dude in the building that didn't know he was sick. And I don't even know what y'all talking about. He just, what, 38? Yeah. I don't know. Like, I guess we're lucky he wasn't healthy because it would have been about 58 or something. But, and then the, what, the 96-54 the beat down, I think it was game three, 54 points. I just, I just can't imagine. Because uh, the Jazz, I mean, they had their own duo that was pretty excellent. I, I got, I got a little more respect for John Stockton, like, I, you, I automatically think of John Stockton as just an all-time NBA leader in assists, great passer. He was, there was plenty of highlights out there of him scoring the ball, hitting a big three in one of those games. Um, speaking of, and speaking of threes, um, I thought the Steve Kerr story was interesting. And uh, it, it makes a lot of sense, and I'm glad they covered it, that when he got to the Bulls, uh, kind of his mentor became John Paxson because they was both similar type players, three-point spot-up shooters. And Steve Kerr in those last three titles, he became the John Paxson and became a guy Michael could rely on, hit a game-winning shot. And and then going back to the ringmaster of, of it all, and it ties into what you was talking about with Dennis Rodman, I don't think there's another coach that would have been able to handle some of the nonsense with Dennis Rod Rodman. Phil Jackson, the the perfect, perfect dude to, to be in that situation. And it goes, it depends on how you look at it. 
it, it it's part of coaching or it goes beyond coaching because the first thing we think of with coaching is X's and O's, X's and O's, offense, defense, substitution patterns, all this type of stuff. But the ability to manage different personalities and nothing more different and eccentric that we've seen <laughs> than Dennis Rodman and the way he handled that, you know, reporters just – uh, was that was that uh was this absence excuse? No, it wasn't excuse. Or oh, where is he? I don't know. He ain't here. Just I don't know what you want from me. He he just he gone. We'll figure it out. He'll be back. And sure enough, came back. Needed to do his thing. Uh, nothing like I've ever seen before with some of the stuff that he had going on. But and then Scott Scotty Pippen. I think in some in some uh, cases, Scotty looked. At different parts of this documentary, it really portrayed him in a bad light. I think some of it that equals that uh, makes it even is that last game, that game six, when his back was no good, and you could like you could just see it. Everything he went to do, he was laboring. And if you if you had a back injury, the, even the least little thing in your back is is all is debilitating, and you, you could see it with how he was moving up and down the court, but. He gutted it out, and I give him a lot of credit for that. And he made a difference out there, yeah. yeah even Michael, at that Michael condition, said it too. Yep. And then, and then, last point, which go back to Phil. Phil let him know, based on the conditions that the executives set and the statements they made at the beginning of the season. Hey guys, this is it. This is the last dance. And then you, they win, and it, you know, there's a cloud over like, well, we won. I know, we know what was said, but what about doing it again? And Phil said, well, guys, uh, write, write some stuff out, bring it in, and then, you know, we'll set it on fire, and that'll be it. And, you know, even out there at the championship event in the park, you know, somewhat telling the fans, like, yep, this is it. It's been great. It's been fun. But that's a wrap. Yeah, this uh, this documentary was awesome, man. I really enjoyed watching this uh, because, you know, like you were kind of saying, drink the younger generation. I mean, late twenties, you know, but I, I didn't really get to see MJ. So, like I said in the beginning of this, I was really looking forward to the deeper look, and I've always leaned a little bit more towards LeBron because that's who I'd seen play. But this, I wouldn't say this like radically changed my opinion. I've always kind of had the, the the opinion that MJ is probably the goat, but this really kind of reinforces that you see a lot of those kind of like goat moments throughout the documentary that really kind of solidify who he was and his legend kind of precedes him and whatnot. But um, yeah, a few things that stood out in the whole, in the last two episodes, you know, some of the funniest clips of this whole thing was just Jordan in the locker room or in practice, just messing around. Like I was legitimately laughing at some of the things he was saying, man, I was having a, I was having a ball. Those, those are some of my favorite moments of the whole thing. Uh, the flu game I thought was really interesting. The food poisoning uh, angle. I didn't expect that. I, I just, I always thought it was just the flu. I, didn't, I never thought it was anything more to it, but um, like you said, Jay Pippen, that was, that was impressive. And I, again, I laughed a lot when he was like, yeah, I was a decoy the whole game. I mean, there was, there was nothing much to it. And like you said, if you had a back injury, man, there, just the fact that he was moving up and down the floor with those guys was impressive. Uh, you can't hardly do anything. So uh, yeah, he, he, I feel like he in this whole documentary kind of got, I don't know. I feel like you're, I think you're right. He just didn't get the the spotlight. Maybe he deserved. I don't know if that was on purpose or if it was just the way it kind of looked, but um, I thought he could have been a little more favorably sort of um, shown in this, in this one. But, um, you know, I thought it was interesting. They were talking about MJ's minutes in that last uh, series. You know, they were like, Oh yeah, Jordan's played all but two minutes of the series. And I, I had to help the thing. I was like, 
doesn't LeBron do that every playoff series? Like, isn't that just something we see nowadays? He's st- some of these stars just play in the playoffs the whole time. I don't know if that was something Jordan started, but um, it just seemed like it would seem novel at the time. And nowadays it's kind of expected. Oh, you're the star. Yeah. You're, you're playing 44, 46 minutes. Deal with it. <laughs> you know, but um, I would, and, and to that point, I would just say that, but back then, and it seemed like that was how they approached. And I'm not saying to, to like 45, 46 minutes, but, they went full out in the regular season, night in and night out. Like Michael, even in that last season, the last championship was upwards, you know, to what, 38 minutes a game. And he played played every night. Whereas now you see some stars, it's more of a, you know, they, they, you coast through the regular season. Right. So you have the energy saved up for the playoffs. Yeah, that could be it. That could be it. Um, yeah, I also thought uh, Reggie Miller's comments, you were talking about that squad and how good Indiana was. But I thought that um, – you know, his, his comments at the end of like that, their part was interesting where he said, you know, he thought they were the better team, that Indiana was a better team rather, but that Jordan's Bulls had that championship DNA. And that's just something we see nowadays. You know, there's just certain teams that have it. And I, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would agree that Indiana was the better team. It was probably very close, but yeah, I, I you look at that series, there was the, the Bulls and being there before that pushed them, you know, over the edge uh, in that series. But uh, yeah, overall, this, this documentary really lived up to the hype. And I feel like I have a better understanding of the team and who they were. And it kind of cut through a lot of the narratives and half-truths, just cherry-pick things you hear without a lot of context. Um, but I want to follow up real quick. Uh, I don't have a ton of time. But, you know, if you were in their shoes, the drink kind of alluded to this, would you have been happy with going out on top? Uh, we'll start with you, Jay. Would you have been happy on going out on top, winning essentially, you know, six for six uh, when you were fully healthy with your squad? Or would you have rather just, you know, came back and played the lost? Yeah, I, I go back to what um, I think, I believe it was Tim Floyd. He was the, you know, kind of the guy Jerry Krause had lined up to replace Phil Jackson after this season was uh, went down. And even Tim Floyd said, Jerry, don't, don't get in the way of this. Let it die a natural death is what he said. And that's kind, that's kind of where I'm at. I feel like as a player, being, being, put myself in the shoes of one, some of the guys on those teams, at the top of their game and just dominating the sport the way they were, I would have liked to continue as long as they could have winning. And then, you know, let's just say they come back one more year and they lose. Okay, well, we went as far as we can go. Now it's over. But to leave it kind of just out there, like, what if? Like, because you know, that's, I, I'm, I'm a, I hate the what ifs. Like, thinking about, you know, and not only in sports, but all parts of my life. Like, what if I could have done more here? What if I... You know, did I have a little bit more effort and energy that I could have done this better? And that's why, and you can tell like, but one of the great things about Michael is he lived it, he lived in the moment. You know, when, when he's, uh, he's, you know, out there playing around on the piano and people are asking him about, you know, what about next year? What about nothing? Like, uh, let's just enjoy this right now. But at the end of the day, I would, if I was a player on those teams, I would have liked to continue as long as I could have and just lose, like, let it happen in front of me. Like let the, let somebody else prove to me that they can beat me and they can beat us. Don't, don't let, you know, executives get in the way of that. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Jay point is understandable, but you know, I'm, I'm the other like mind. If I'm talking about myself, then yeah, I want to give it everything I got. But when I look at some of these athletes, when I look at their legacy, when I look at, you know, their aura, you got to understand, Michael Jordan retired twice on top, and then the last retirement was the last retirement after the Wizards. But 
he retired twice on top. And what led after those retirements is what if, what if, what if. That drives a lot for a player like Michael Jordan. Because instead of people saying, hey, you left at the right time, instead they're like, man, we want you back, Mike. We need you, baby. Come on, man. Come on back. You know what I'm saying? And then he was able to – I ain't going to say he tried to prove a point, but he was able to prove a point. If everyone thought that he was overhyped and he wasn't as good as he was and that he was just, you know, a normal player, well, look at what the Bulls did when he was gone for that year and, and some change. The first retirement, he showed that, listen, I'm, at, I'm, I'm good as advertised. So it is what it is. And then he come back, he wins three more, and then in 1998, he has the even bigger clout than the first time of what if? What if they would have came back for one year? Like I say, I, I equate this to Barry Sanders. Barry Sanders was running all over the NFL, one of the most elusive, elusive running backs ever in NFL history. And he just retired out of nowhere. And people was like, wait, what? Why would he do that? Barry, come back. You're young. You're in your prime. Why would you leave now? And it, it left you with the big, what if Barry would have stayed? What if Barry would have played more? He would be the all-time Russian leader. He will be the all-time this, all-time that. So for Michael, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big component of leave when you're on top. Why wait, embarrass yourself, go out the wrong way, and then people, you give them something else to talk about. If Jordan didn't come back in those Washington Wizard days, what would, like you would have very little negative things to say about him. But he did come back. Because the what if got to him, and he, he, oh, I got something else left in the tank. Let me come back. And then those wizard days was totally opposite of those Bulls days. And now he has to live with that on his resume that he did that. Had he stayed away, he would just been this mythic god in the game of basketball that we know him as. But he came back. So I, I, I don't have a problem with you leaving at, at the tip top and, and leaving us as fans, as media, to say, what if? guys with the last dance wrapped up it's easy to think that it may not be the only one of its kind jordan and the 90s bulls are widely considered the most influential team in nba history but they're far from the only one there's been plenty of other superstars dynasties three peats and dominance across the league's history worth talking about so jay which team should be up next their own 10-part documentary series so just keeping it in the nba and i'm just thinking of, of dynasties and teams that have won um similar to this level since the Bulls in the NBA. So you got the Lakers, the Spurs, the Heat with LeBron and D-Wade and all them. And then the Warriors, the Warriors are interesting, but I would, the Warriors are still kind of right now. So they can wait. Like, let's, let's, let's quit with the documentary, like right now when it's very possible they could add another ring next year. We just don't know, but they're gonna have a good, they're gonna be right back in the thick of things at the very least. To me, this is pretty easy. Um, I think it's I think it's the Lakers, all the way from '96 to 2004. Um, that whole timeline where Shaq and Kobe were together, the Shaq Kobe relationship by itself is worth a documentary. The point now, the point that Kobe's no longer with us, that you know that would probably significantly inhibit. Um, that documentary and it wouldn't be as good and also another great point uh, Cody brought up earlier is the Bulls in 97 98 
had already, you know, made agreements that they were going to get more access to media, to media members to, you know, have this exclusive access. So Lakers didn't have that, but at least, uh, not to our knowledge anyway. So, but even so, this is kind of a wish list. I want this Laker team. I want the Kobe and Shaq relationship, Phil Jackson right along with him. And I talked about, I talked about this a little earlier. The other, the other components of that Laker run, especially the championship teams, they're kind of like, you know, some of the names, but beyond that, you don't know a lot. Like I'm talking about your Derek Fishers, your Robert Horry's, your Rick Foxes, and you know, the list goes on and on. They really didn't have, when you look at today's NBA, people always talk about that third score. They didn't have a, they didn't really have a third score. They had clutch guys that made big shots late, Fisher and Horry specifically, but throughout the, you know, the first 46 minutes of the game, you know what you were getting. You were getting Kobe on the outside. You were getting Shaq in the paint. And that's what it was. They were, that's how, that speaks to how great they were as a duo. But all in all, the Kobe-Shaq relationship, you know, when it was good, when it was bad, towards the end. And in 2004, Phil Jackson wrote a book after that season. It's called The Last, it's called the Last Season. When they brought in Gary Payton, when they brought in Carl Malone, it's a great read, um, fascinating season. It's when Kobe was going, also going through his uh, the sexual assault allegations with Colorado, when he was in Colorado, you know, in the morning and, you know, in San Antonio at night playing, all this different type of stuff. Fascinating, all those different personalities. But, yeah, with all that, it's, it's easy. I think it's the Lakers. Yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I agree with uh, Jay. And here's the reason why. We have to understand – why was this Bulls documentary exciting? Why did we care for it? It could have been a dud. It could have been a boom, but it wasn't. Why? Because you have these independent um, components and you slapped them together and it gave you what you want. You got the drama. You got the unity. You got the ups. You got the downs. You, you have, okay, I knew this, but that took it to the next level. Okay, oh, I knew this guy, you, you got the changeover of the players during the time. You have the stars not – they're not seeing eye-to-eye from time to time. Sometimes Jordan didn't see eye-to-eye with Pippen. Pippen didn't see eye-to-eye with Robin. Robin didn't see eye-to-eye with anybody. And then Phil had to glue all of this together. So when you think about all these nuances that is put together to make this documentary so good, you have to have these components to live up, especially if you're going to say 10 parts. You know what I'm saying? Maybe a, a hot five or something, maybe six. You can get away with it. But when you say 10, you got to have the context. And this is why I think the Lakers match that because they can give you all of that. You have, you know, Kobe and Shaq's relationship that, that's going to give you a hot five ep- uh, episodes by itself. Then you got what Phil was doing during that time. Then you got, like he said, the Kobe case. You got, you got um, when they added Gary Payton, when they added Carl Malone. You got the shot made by Derek Fisher with .004. You know, you have these components here, the Brian Shaws, the, the Rick Foxes. You have all this time that went through that would keep a person sitting in their seat to be like, oh, I didn't, what? I didn't even know that. Oh, I thought this was that, but that was this. Oh, okay. Um, You know, and then at the end of the day, when you think about it, you, you say to yourself, what kind of coach can put – oh, it was Phil. Once again, Phil wins again. Phil out here with the extracurricular skill set 
that that wrapped all. He was the bow on the top of this present that got it, you know, under the tree that was filled. So when you you look at all this, it. I think this is really the only team, the only dynasty that you could talk about that would give you every check in the box as far as entertainer. I want more. I want to see more. I didn't know that. You know, feed me. Drop that every Sunday for two hours and get people to the seat. That I think they're the only ones. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the other um, dynasties um, could not live to it, but I would challenge you to show me where those dynasties hit every box in the, in the world of entertainment as well as in the world of sports. Yeah, I think that's the, kind of the whole thesis here is, is I, I absolutely agree, first of all, that it would be the Shaq Kobe Lakers. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of dynasties that were just, yeah, these dudes are pretty good. I mean, like, you know, Jay, you were talking about the Warriors, you know, like, okay, yeah, once upon a time, a team drafted a bunch of good players, they got a good coach, and they were good. Uh, you know, San Antonio, I mean, that they're, they're a great dynasty, but would that really be something you want to watch 10 episodes on? Like, Pop and Tim Duncan and, you know, like – I don't know if I want to watch 10 episodes that, I mean, if I was a Spurs fan, but uh, you, you need the, the second level, you need the the stars, you need the the characters, you need the, the controversy. And, and I think, like you said, I think that's one of these, this is one of the few teams that does highlight all those additional things going beyond just, you know, you know they're pretty good. And, and this team beat some really good teams. They beat some of the San Antonio teams. They beat Kevin Garnett's Wolves. They beat, they had that infamous playoff series, a seven game series with the Kings when they were good, you know, Jason Kidd and the Nets. I mean, the list goes on. The Trailblazers. Yeah, the Trailblazers. And those, I mean, you know, any good stars? Like, you know, all these dudes we were watching in the last dance that we're interviewing. You're like, oh, yeah, I remember him. He was a dude. Like, you know, any guys you could have in on this one? Yeah, pretty much the same Pacers team that the Bulls beat in the Eastern Conference Finals. That team eventually made it to the NBA Finals. That was the Lakers' first championship. Yep. Okay. There you go. Yeah. The list goes on. There's a lot you could throw in on that. So, um, if I was throwing an NBA runner-up, I, I would say I'd want a ten-part series on Wilt Chamberlain, both on and off the court. But that's, I guess, another, <laughs> I another think, topic yeah. for the day. I, I want to see off the court. You know, yeah, I mean, my gosh, <laughs> what you hear on that. But uh, Drink, yeah, Drink so, wants to see Drink wants to see film on Wilt Chamberlain. I do want to see film on I Wilt Chamberlain in general, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's very true. Uh, so you know, speaking of uh, these recent dynasty breakups, you know, we were talking about the Bulls earlier, but uh, of this this little dynasty here with uh, Kobe, Shaq, and Phil, uh, we'll start with you, Drink. Who do you think was the most important part of the dynasty they had? Well, listen, um, we we got to understand Shaq came when when Shaq came. That Shaq was in his prime when he got there from Orlando. Then they drafted this little skinny kid out of Philadelphia named Kobe. Well, I mean, they traded for this little skinny kid out of uh, Philadelphia, uh, Kobe Bryant. They didn't know what they exactly had at the time, and then he came up to be what he was. But at the end of the day, I'm I'm gonna go with Shaq because Shaq was the foundational piece that started this. Like you got to have a foundation, just like the Bulls had. Michael. Michael was the foundation. He lost. He couldn't get over the hump. Then you went out and you got him a Scotty. You went out, you got him a Phil. You went out, you got him a Paxson. And and the, and the list goes on and on. Where, where the Lakers was kind of in that same era. They went out, they paid Shaq all this money to come in and be their foundational piece. The wheels started turning. Then they went out and got the COVID. They got him a, a superstar. Then they went out and got the Phils. And then they went out and got the Fishers. And they went out and got all these pieces. And it all is start adding up. Now we know how it ended up at the end, but if I had to uh, answer that question now, I'm gonna go with Shaq. Well, yeah, the, 
as much you know, you guys know how how much I love Kobe, and you know how much I love Phil too. And the Lakers don't win any titles without those two guys. But I do agree with Drink 100%. Uh, Shaq was the foundation. Uh, Shaq at this point, and outside of Will, I think Shaq is the most dominant force uh, in the interior that we've ever seen. Um, and his play throughout the first three, you know, probably three and a half quarters is what, you know, kept you in games or put you in front of games. And to that point, just, I mean, we've never seen anything. I mean, Bill Walton in these old games, you know, there's three things he would always refer to it in Shaq in Shaq's game. He would always say the three things about Shaq, the jump hook, the lob, and the offensive rebound. You can run, you can run the clips back, and he'd say that over and over. And it's true. And just such a, a unique uh, dominant force that, you know, Shaq got – he got hacked and fouled, you know, every play – but, you know, officials just would swallow the whistle half the time just to, like, keep the game moving. He was such a unique force. But he was, he was flawed now. He couldn't hit free throws. Uh, sometimes you could question his effort and, you know, his buy-in. And, you know, he'd come in out of shape. And he would play his way into shape throughout the season. But he, to me, he was the most important. But you don't win without Kobe because at the end of the game, when you need a perimeter shot, when you know Shaq's getting hacked because you can't shoot foul shots, um, and when Shaq would foul out from time to time, you know, there was a, a point in that Pacers series where he fouled out. Kobe was a guy that could bring you home and could close and had that killer instinct that would get you over the top. Yeah, as far as the players go, I'd probably agree. I, I always have to think like a guy like Kobe who had that sort of MJ-level drive and that hyper-competitiveness. Like, it's hard to imagine that he wasn't kind of the – the sort of like heartbeat of the team. But yeah, I think we were talking about like, as far as on the court, Shaq's play was really what anchored those teams. And without him, I don't know if Kobe could have pulled those, those, some of those, you know, championships off, especially not without him. But if you just put a player like that was pretty good, but just not Shaq good in his place. But, you know, like we were talking about with the, the last dance, you know, Phil Jackson, his secret was the ability to, to manage personalities. And we know a lot about the Kobe Shaq feud on the surface, but how do we not know there was even more going on behind the scenes? I mean, we see now some of the oh, crap yeah. he put up with during the nineties with the bulls, like, and that, yeah. again, that's just what we know and what we were allowed to see on film. Yeah, how you, much more crap happened that we didn't know about, you know, yeah, you know, that was more. So you, you wonder if maybe Phil Jackson wasn't the glue that held this whole thing together. Maybe it would have just blown up completely and flamed out, you know, if that was, Look. Let me, let me tell you something. Yo, what this tells me is Phil got all the secrets. He got all the secrets from 1991 to, like, uh, <laughs> well, like, 2011. Like, mm -hmm. this dude got all the secrets because he didn't see that all behind the scenes as a head coach. I mean, when you're the most winningest coach of all time, I mean, you got a lot of stuff. This dude might get his own documentary from everything he didn't see in his lifetime, you know? So that's kind of that's kind of interesting. Say, yeah, maybe maybe uh, before you know he goes on, we'll get his ten part documentary. That might be more interesting than anything we've seen so far. We'll have to see. All right, let's move over to the NFL. The annual owners meeting included several proposed changes to the Rooney Rule, which requires NFL teams to interview minority candidates for vacant head coaching positions. Some resolutions were tabled, such as draft pick incentivization for minority hires. However, starting this year, teams will have to interview minorities for coordinator positions in addition to head coaching jobs, will not be allowed to deny opportunities for assistance to interview with other teams for certain jobs, and the NFL will be ramping up coaching workshops and opportunities for minority candidates. So, Drake, should the NFL expand the rule further, or should they just scrap it all together? 
if if a black guy went and he could be and he could be just and I'm gonna say black because I only know about black. I'm not Indian. I'm not Arab. I don't I don't know about the other minority groups. I can only speak for African American. But if a, if a, if a black guy went to Amazon, went to Jeff Bezos and said, "Hey man, I want to be your CFO. Look at my resume. I'm I'm more qualified to be your CFO." And Jeff Bezos said, "Man, get your ass out of my office." Like that would be the end of it. That would that would be the end. You know why? Because that's Jeff Bezos' organization to do whatever he wants to do with it. That at the end of the day, I say that to say this. At the end of the day, I appreciate Roger Goodell trying to, you know, gain some ground on this. I appreciate what the NFL is trying to do. You have 32 billionaire owners. Each team is a business. So for you to think that you're going to tell a CEO a chairman, however they look at themselves, how to run their business, good luck. Good luck with that. At the end of the day, we were talking about this earlier, and, and I know you're going to get these numbers. I don't think, per se, when I talk to other African Americans and, and I get their view on this, it's not the head coaching numbers that's the problem with the owner rule. I think, you know, if you actually average out, the head coaches are pretty decent. It's the GM. It's the owner. Well, here's the deal. Ownership don't have a term to it. You're an owner until you're, until you're not. So until we get more, you know, minority owners, more minority GMs, then and only then would the numbers might, you know, pan out to the, the, the mass numbers of the players, of the employees, because that's the problem here. You see this big number of a minority employees that's somewhere in the 80, 90 percentile, and then you look, you look at the head coaching numbers, and then you look at the GM numbers, then you look at the owner numbers, and now you're like, this doesn't add up. Well, at the end of the day, you cannot tell someone how to run their business. I, like the NFL could come out here and say, hey, we'll give you a first-round pick. Oh, thanks. I, I'm good, though. Because if that was the case, if that was the case, Colin Kaepernick could be playing in the NFL right now. It's, it's, a, it's a number of reasons why he's not playing. But if you remember, they tried to make this a big race thing. And the owner's like, yep, 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 we hear you, man. Yeah, 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 yeah sure. He still ain't in the NBA. He's still not in the NFL. So for all that stuff that they talk, these billionaires know this is my business. You're not going to tell me how to run my business. I'm going to go with who I feel comfortable with whether his skin color is pale white or whether it's dark midnight black. I don't care. That employee will go off what I set for it to him. You're not going to tell me who I can hire or who I can't hire. So uh, it's cute that the revision says they have to do something. That's nice. That's cool. But unless you're there in the interview process with them, good luck, because they can do whatever they want to. So my, my view of this is this. Until we get more minorities in the decision-making chain, this is what we got to deal with. It is what it is. One day it might get better, one day it might not. But listen, we, we could control what we can control, and this is not one of them. So I guess uh, Roger Goodell got his work cut off for him as far as I look at it. Yeah, in, in answering the question, I guess I would have to leave to scrapping it and not, not because I don't think more black coaches are deserving because I think you know, Eric Bieniemy is a great example when you look at 
uh, previous offensive coordinators for Andy Reid. We've seen Doug Peterson win a Super Bowl. We've seen Matt Nagy have, you know, he won a division year before last or last season. So, I mean, it would, it would stand a reason that that's a bad look optically for the NFL because Eric Bieniemy hasn't been able to get a job, uh, head coaching position for two straight years and including this offseason coming off a Super Bowl. But your point about GM, your general managers is absolutely right. There, there are no – well, there's, there's a few. I know Andrew, Andrew Barry just got hired for the Cleveland Browns. So there's a few. But by and large, I mean, as you go up the ladder of hierarchy in the NFL, it's more and more white than minority. There's, and two, it, and there's two GMs that are minorities. Two GMs, okay. And then there are no black owners or no minority owners, right? And that's, that's where it comes into – and Drink's absolutely right – they got – I mean, when you're the owner of something, you got the right to run it however you want, you know. And even – and we've seen, like, Cleveland, for example, last season. They could have hired – I mean, anybody would have been better than Freddie Kitchens probably. Like, they could have st- stood the reason to hire a minority coach, and they chose not to. But that's just kind of, just kind of the way it goes. Uh, I brought this up earlier, and I'll say it again. The best thing the NFL would have to would be able to do, you got it got to start from the top. And if there's another Jerry Richardson ownership thing that happens, that Roger Goodell NFL league office put out an ad somewhere to say, "Hey, wanted minority group buy this NFL team. This is how y'all. This is how we fix this and try to make it. I don't know a little bit more equitable, but it's got to start from the top because." If, I, if I'm a white owner in the NFL and I've got, let's say I got a head coaching vacancy and I bring in, you know, f- let's say I interview five people, I got my one minority candidate to comply with the Rooney rule and I got four, you know, white candidates. I mean, it, it stands to reason that probably none of them are unqualified. They probably all can do the job with varying levels of success, but they're probably all qualified. It's probably not some bum just walking around like, why are you even here? You know? So at the end of the day, it would probably stand to reason that I'm going to hire somebody I'm more comfortable with. And more often than not, it's probably going to be somebody that looks like me. That's probably, that, that's kind of just the way I see it. So it's got to come from the top. It's got to be, there's got to be somehow there's got to be an ownership change to where you get a you get either a black person or a black group that can make those decisions. Until then, I mean, it's just kind of like the NFL is trying, but it's not really having an effect. This rule's been in effect since 2003, I believe. And I mean, we're talking about today. There's four minority head coaches, and that does, and again, and now that that doesn't even that doesn't seem really good, but. Just a couple years ago, I believe that was doubled to about eight. And we got to think about, we got to think about this. Vance Joseph, Steve Wilkes, uh, Marvin Lewis, Hugh Jackson. And let's break these down. Marvin Lewis, it was just his time to go. His time in Cincinnati had just run its course. And you can make arguments that he should have been gone years ago. Uh, Hugh Jackson, I mean, I'm sorry. I don't care what color you are, but if you go one in 31 over two years, I mean, what, what do you want? You can't, for the sake of equality, you can't be that bad or have a record that that's bad and stand to keep your job. It's just not going to happen. Steve Wilkes, Steve Wilkes got kind of screwed because Arizona was a mess that year. And then, you know, it just kind of was what it was. 
And then Vance Joseph, Vance Joseph just wasn't very good. I mean, let's be honest. We can go back and look at that. Um, so you had eight, but there, it dwindles down to four. And I mean, it's unfortunate, but you can't just make those teams hire another minority coach just to keep, you know, so everybody feels better about themselves in terms of equality. And now I'll get to the point about all these incentives that they're proposing to kind of entice teams to maybe take it more seriously. Because I, I don't, I think, I think we can all probably, I think it's a safe assumption that these interview requirements, they're just bringing a guy in, they're interviewing him for the sake of being in compliance with the rule, but they probably, I mean, they probably don't have an intention of going that route. They're just doing it to, all right, well, we check this box. All right, let's get serious now. <clears throat> but the, in, the incentive pieces with draft picks and whatever else is being thrown around, I, and I told Drink this earlier. I think no matter who you are, the one thing you, the one thing you want, you just want a fair and equal hiring process. Line up resumes and the best, the best man should get the job. And, but now when you talk about incentives and draft pick positions, I mean, you're not, I don't, that's not really helping because, I mean, you're setting a condition to kind of artificially level the playing field. But now if you got a black coach and a white coach that are, you know, of equal, we think they got equal resumes, equal interviews, all these things, and a draft pick incentive is the tiebreaker. How is that an equal playing field? I don't think it is. Yeah, this uh, this topic is is pretty. Uh, the more I dug into the numbers, the more interesting it become. Uh, just to answer you on the owner's note, real quick, uh, Shad Khan, Pakistani American, and Kim uh, Pegula, the Bills okay. co-owner, as Asian Americans. That's the only two minority owners, and one's a co-owner. But uh, you, you know, when you talk about this this topic, you have to answer a few questions before you can begin to identify a solution. And first of all, we have to ask, well, what is a target for your diverse, fair, inclusive league? I mean, you can tell me, oh, it just needs to be this, needs to be that. But like, we need to have some sort of like goalpost, right? So you start with the census data, which tells you 76% of the country is white, and then 12.5% is black, 13.5% is Hispanic, and then of course the rest of your minorities are well, they're the rest. So logically, you would expect about 24% of your head coaches, your coordinators, and your management positions to be minorities. But as of today, four NFL head coaches are minorities. It's Tomlin, Rivera, Lynn, and Flores are about 12.5%. There's 12 coordinators, two offensive, 10 defensive, which is 18.75%. And you have your two general managers we talked about earlier, or 6%. So for reference to the league, the NFL league office does employ 28% minorities in their overall, you know, operations. So, you know, the data first tells you the NFL is close in some regards, especially in terms of coordinators, somewhat close in terms of coaching, or we're getting there. You had to remember out of 32, if you go to five or six, you're quickly approaching, you know, your 24% goal. And then, um, you know, from a purely mathematical standpoint, now they do fail pretty obviously when it comes to general manager positions. But then you have to factor in, okay, well, 60 to 70% of uh, players are minorities in the NFL. So is that your goal? Does being a former player matter more? Of nine of only 32 NFL head coaches have had NFL playing experience. But then there's greats like, you know, Andy Reid and Bill Belichick, or even guys like Kyle Shanahan, who's gotten the Super Bowl, who never played a down in the NFL. The NBA has a similar breakdown. They had just 10 of 30 coaches having played in the league. Uh, but, you know, you could also flip that argument on its head and say critics like to point out that the NHL and the MLB, who are primarily white still, uh, 22 of 31 NHL coaches and 22 of 29 MLB managers did play. So, 
you know, in those white dominated sports, you actually have a higher proportion of players to coaches versus the NFL and NBA is kind of the opposite. You know, but overall, I think when you talk about coaching in terms of uh, comparison to being a player, it's hard to say, oh, there's definitely a link of if you were a player, you were a better coach or a better manager. I mean, we we just got talking about my, talking about Michael Jordan for 30 minutes. Uh, what's he done with the Bobcats or the Hornets or whoever they are this week? I mean, it's you know what I mean? It's hard to sell that you would say, oh, well, you have to be a player to be a good coach or vice versa. So, you know, you get to the question, okay, well, then what is what is wrong? And, and like you said, you were talking about the breakdown, Jay. I don't think it's that minority coaches are getting an unfair shake in terms of when they get the jobs. Uh, in 2018, you know, those five were fired. Uh, in 2019, only Ron Rivera was. He got another job right away. So I think that the one thing you could point to is you say, when you look at single season firings, three of the last 11 in, in a single, as in you got one season, you were canned. Three of the last 11 have been minorities, which is disproportionate to how many there are hired and also 29% of white coaches get a second head coaching job recently while just 8% of minority coaches get a second head coaching job and that's again you're working on a, a small sample size with minority coaches to date but you know when I, when I talk about the solution I think it goes back to to a lot of it to me is, is part of the system of becoming a NFL head coach or becoming an NFL offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator. You know, you're climbing that ladder. You're starting in your twenties. You know, you're becoming an assistant at some smaller school or a college. And then you work your way up to a positional coach and then a coordinator, but then you do it all again when you go to college and you do it all again when you go to the NFL and you're, you're constantly working up the ladder. And I think that getting those positions can be harder when, when black coaches probably aren't given the best opportunities in the lower ranks and then move up. Uh, oftentimes getting a, a job may just be who you know or being in the right place at the right time. And if you're denied those opportunities at the lower levels, it's going to be hard to uh, rise to the ranks of where you're going to be pulled from. Because let's be honest, if you are an NFL head coach, you were probably an offensive or defensive coordinator in the NFL. It's not often. I mean, like Matt Rule you is an outlier of late that got straight from college or like Cliff Kingsbury. Pretty kitchens. Yeah, okay, yeah, again, but, but every year there's maybe one of those hires versus the majority of these guys, you know, their positional coaches and their coordinators, then their head coaches. So, uh, you know, I think that that's one place you could kind of focus your efforts. But, yeah, overall, like you said, Jay, I would hate to think that I was one of these coaches going in for an interview where I was being asked about a job just because of my skin color or just to be a quota or a check in the box. You know, I don't think that the answer is so much to force the solution by by rules that you have to do x or y because like you said drink at the end of the day these teams don't do what they want to do these owners don't do what they want to do like if they got their guy in mind they know that's their guy they're going to do what they got to do to get them right but uh, you can fix the system that brings these guys up to the ranks you can create better opportunities to start with and i think that you would get a lot closer to your target of you know your demographics based off your total population versus what you see in the nfl yeah so uh, to the and to that point you're bringing up and I think it's a good discussion to have the NFL, what is their goal? Because I, I don't think they have a goal right now. It's just, you know, throwing something at the wall, you right. know, diversity, 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 but there is no target. Now, the, number, the numbers you bring up and you talk about 24%, 25%, whatever it is, that's where they just were a couple of years ago. So, I mean, in terms of you going, you're going with the census, the census data. Right. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't look yeah, it doesn't look right when you talk about um the makeup of the players, because we know the makeup of the players is a vast majority of players are minority players. But at the end of the day, the NFL can have whatever vision, whatever goal they want to, and Roger can bring all the owners in, uh, thirty white ones and two minority ones, say, Hey, yeah, this uh this is what we're trying to do up here. You know, thirty white owners gonna look at him like, Okay, that, that's cool. Yep. 
But look, I'm gonna whatever the owner's goal is, whether it's to make money or win games, they're gonna do what they want to do. Right. So I think we're all in agreement that there is a problem. It's just this rule probably isn't the best way to go about fixing it. All right, guys, let's wrap up tonight in the NFL with some players, coaches, and teams under pressure. The offseason has set the stage for a very interesting season. Some coaches find themselves on the hot seat before a snap has been played. Some teams are under immense pressure to succeed. And there's big-name players with a lot to prove. So let's go down the list under the most pressure in 2020. And, Jay, we'll start with the team. Who do you think is under the most pressure as the team? Uh, I'm, I'm going with the Baltimore Ravens. Um, this is a team. We know how dominant they were in the regular season last year with a record of 14-2. and two. Uh, and then they got to the playoffs, and uh, yeah, that uh, that Tennessee Titan Derrick Henry show came through, and just um, they got punched in the mouth. They couldn't recover. Lamar Jackson was uncomfortable, and they were put in a position where they really weren't put in uh, pretty much the sec- all the second half of last season. And coming, and we we talked about the schedule recently. They got the easiest schedule. Uh, we all agree they had one of the best drafts, one of the best drafts. They restocked. They reloaded. Uh, they got Duvernay, another target for Lamar Jackson. They added J.K. Dobbins, so the running game is going to – I mean, we expect it to be as good, if not a little bit better. And I think it's fair to say we expect Lamar Jackson to take another step. And with all that in mind, I don't see any reason to why 12, 13 wins is what we should expect. And the that division, Cincinnati's not going to be ready. And although Cleveland and Pittsburgh, I think there's potential. They also got some question marks. They could e- they could very easily not be good. So I think it's I think Baltimore is under pressure. I think they'll rise to it, but I'd be very surprised. I think it'd be very disappointing if Baltimore wasn't as good as they were last year. Yeah, hey, um, one, I agree with that pick. That was a wonderful pick. Um, I went with the Green Bay Packers, and and the reason being, uh, listen. Jada made it very known how he felt about the, the, the tomfoolery and the, the firing circus in the offseason. Uh, we just heard with Aaron Rodgers how he feel about it. And here's the gist. 13-3, one game away from the Super Bowl. This year, you got to think, if you don't do – if you don't meet that plateau, I just – I don't know what you do with Aaron Rodgers. You go from being one of the NFL I – mean, one of the NFC elites to you probably be a doormat because if you – if Aaron Rodgers is gone, you throwing in old Justin Love here, or uh, uh, Jordan Love, I'm sorry, Jordan Love, and then you you got the you got Devontae Adams out there flopping in the wind now. He became one of the top wide receivers in the NFL because of Aaron Rodgers. And then you got this guy that you drafted. I don't even know what his name is, but you got this guy that you decided to draft at the end of the draft. You got this cat. You know, you got these running backs. You got the defense that you invested heavily in that now what you're going to ask them to pull the old Chicago, hey, carry us on your shoulders. Listen, I think this year, if they don't get it done, uh, uh, you know, we expect, we always expect teams to do better. Like we said, there was one game from the Super Bowl. I don't really see them being in the Super Bowl, so I can really see this going soft really, really fast for the Green Bay Packers. So I, I, I picked the Green Bay Packers to say they would come, they would become from one of the elite, a, a uh, NFC teams to one of the doormats in, in, in about a year and a half. 
Yeah, I went with New Orleans, although I like both y'all's picks a lot. I just I think in New Orleans, we're you know, we're talking about last dances. I think that this is probably the last ride for Drew Brees. And I'm not certain he retires, but it does seem like his comfy gigs and the, the booth are all lined up and he's just gotta be close to hanging it up. And this is a team that's been a Super Bowl contender for the last couple of years. They've always found a tragic way to slip up and lose in the playoffs. And you gotta think they don't have much more many more chances. So I, I feel like this team is good as they had a pretty solid draft. They've had a good offseason. You know, the Breeze is coming back. I mean, they they should be a team that contends again. They're going to have to really prove that they can get it done, you know, when it comes time in the playoffs. All right, Jake, we'll move on to quarterback. And yeah, for that. Oh, yeah, baby. You know what it is. It's Mr. Five Stash himself, uh, Baker Mayfield. Listen, here's the deal. You know, last year you could have chalked up that season to, you know, overhype. Uh, they didn't quite build a team as good as they thought they had. Um, you got a head coach out here that was the equivalent of a hockey puck. And then now you got um, – you you had guys out here dying on the team left and right, but here's the deal. You don't have that excuse this year. You you went out. You went in. You filled the positions that you needed to fill, the offensive line. You got more pass catches. That defense got stronger. So um, you got a head coach that seems to have everybody thinking that he's a dope, including me, that he can get the job done. It's no more excuses, Baker Mayfield. It's no more. You have to take that step forward. If you do not make that step, you could go um, join Johnny Mazel. You're out of here, buddy. You can go ahead and get on out. Yes, I said it. I said it. I'm going to tell you why. Because when you come in the NFL with a certain ego that Baker Mayfield has now and you don't perform, who, who wants to deal with you? Like, who wants to deal with you? They, let me tell you what they like, especially as a number two quarterback, that plain, quiet guy that don't say nothing. He just comes in, that Brian Hoyer guy just warms it up, just warms up the arm. You don't even know how, what he sounds like when he talks. That is what you want in the backup quarterback. You don't want a Colin Kaepernick as your backup quarterback. You don't want a Cam Newton as your backup quarterback. You cannot have a quarterback, your backup quarterback, talking more trash than the starter. And that's what you would get with Baker Mayfield. So if he want to maintain a starting quarterback position in today's NFL, he better step forward because the excuses are gone now. Either you're going to get it done or you're not. So, yeah, I went with Baker Mayfield. Can't, uh, can't argue a whole lot. That's a that's a really good pick. Uh, well, you know where I'm going. I'm going down to Lone Star State and uh, America's team, so they're known with the quarterback that still don't have a contract. I haven't seen that news hit. I haven't seen the contract news from Adam Schefter. So I'm, I'm operating on this subject. He still ain't got paid. So, uh, that, but it's Dak Prescott. And I don't want to hear I don't want to hear none of this crap about oh you know I got a new coach Mike McCarthy installing whatever he's doing I don't want to hear it it's it's time um, because listen Cowboys have made offers um, uh, you said they weren't good enough so I don't know it's it's time to show me something and I'm not talking about throwing for four thousand yards and career highs and touchdowns or whatever um, it's it's time to it's time to go back win some games. Get in the playoffs and and go because uh, offensively, um, you still got Zeke, you got Amari Cooper, you got Michael Gallup, and they uh, d- look, they got they gave you a Christmas present at the end of April with CD Lamb coming to town. So you got a plethora of weapons. Uh, it's time to bring it. And outside of the Eagles, the NFC the NFC East. Uh, the Giants and Redskins, um, they're not going to be very good. So it's time to win. 
Yeah, I went with a little more off the wall here. I'm thinking that Teddy Bridgewater is a guy that's under a lot more pressure. And you would think at first you go, okay, well, he just signed a big contract. Why would he be? But it's a three-year deal. And it's a regime that, you know, seems to have the keys for a couple years, right? This Matt Rule, Joe Brady experiment feels like it's they're going to be there for a while. You know, they're going to get more than just a season or two. And that 2020 quarterback class, you know, we talked about it before the show, and maybe the jury's still out more than I think. But, you know, you got, you got guys that you know are commodities like Justin, uh, Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence. And you also have guys like Trey Lance, North Dakota State, and some other guys that could be in. You know, we know how these quarterback classes go. As the year goes on, dudes get hyped up. You could have four or five quarterbacks going to the top ten next year. And the Panthers, we assume they're probably going to struggle to a degree with that brand-new defense and whatnot. You know, if they're bad and Bridgewater looks just okay, I think it would be tempting if the Panthers are in the top three or top five picks to maybe go after a new quarterback and kind of really kind of start fresh than maybe, you know, rolling with what they've got. It just I think that temptation might be there. Let's go ahead and move on to uh, wide receiver, Jay. Who you got? Uh, you know, the dude that played with Baker Mayfield up there in Cleveland. And I'm not talking about Jarvis Landry. I'm talking about Odell Beckham. Listen, last season, Odell's first season in Cleveland, we spent more time talking about um, some of the attire and the extracurricular than what he was doing uh, catching passes. Uh, we talking about wearing watches. We talking about chains. We talking about wearing the wrong shoes. We talking about going to the national championship game and throwing money at players. We, just so much nonsense. And there's not enough um, actual stuff that we need to be talking about, which is catching passes, uh, gaining yards for your team, and getting in the end zone, contributing to winning. And it's not only Odell. He's not the only issue. Baker Mayfield right along with him uh, problematic. But you can't just tell me – you can't just blame all of it on Baker Mayfield because we've seen Odell dominate with suspect quarterback play. We know when he was in New York, Eli Manning has been just a train wreck for years. But he could still from time to time, many a time, throw the, uh, just get the ball out quick and Odell could make it happen. So you can't tell me he can't do it. We just got to see it. Odell's under the most pressure at that position. Yeah, I agree with Jay. Listen, I would I would challenge someone to tell me another player that's that's considered top ten in their position that do less than Odell Beckham has done in the last I don't know two to three years. Listen, here's the deal: you 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 had a chance to to, to put your name in in folklore, but you decided to go to Miami and be on the boat. You had a chance to show us that you was the real deal. You decided to fight something on the sideline or, or whatever you was beating up on the sideline. Here's the deal. When you when you're looking more like a WWE superstar than an NFL superstar, it's a problem here. You're starting to be more of a prop than you are a player. And listen, when with all that said, Odell Beckham is a hell of a player. He showed us he can be a hell of a player. But the problem is he he won't put it he won't put it together to give us a finished product on the field. And this is why they're considered trading him again. Listen, a guy of Odell Beckham's talent shouldn't be traded this much. Hell, Josh Gordon smoked weed and been suspended half of the time, and he didn't get traded this much. So now you want to tell me that, you know, this guy's the best thing since sliced bread, but you, you got he almost getting dealt to the Dolphins. Like, that's not it. So what, what needs to happen here is Odell needs to focus on the game of football. He needs to go back to being that superstar guy. I'm like, what has he done since the, the, the three-finger catch in a game that they lost anyway? But what has he done? You know what I mean? Like, 
give me something over there other than a bunch of lip service and the after party after the national championship. That's just not going to cut it. So I, I need Odell Beckham to step it up. Yeah, that's probably the best answer. I mean, that's a lot more bark than bite right now. Uh, I was thinking a little bit different. I look at Amari Cooper, you know, the Cowboy under a lot of pressure. I think the whole team is under a good bit of pressure, like you said. But um, I think that one thing that Amari Cooper's looking at now is the fact that CeeDee Lamb fell into their lap in the draft, a guy that wasn't really supposed to be there. And he did, again, he signed that big contract recently, but he did, they do have a sizable way to get out of it without much uh, penalty after this, this next season. So, if he doesn't perform very well, and CeeDee Lamb has a great rookie campaign, uh, Dallas, a team that's always kind of up there with salary, they may be looking to shed some salary somewhere, and Amari Cooper could be the one that gets out of town and really what may not be a fault of his own, but he's going to have to really turn it up this year to make sure he's the guy that stays in Dallas and keeps getting those big paychecks. All right, uh, Drink, we'll go back over to the defensive side of the ball. What do you have for that? Hey, no, it was easy for me. This one, Khalil Mack, I don't know. Somebody put an APP out on him. Listen, uh, Khalil Mack ain't showed up since he signed that big payday. I don't know what this was about. But I tell you what, John, Green, uh, John Gruden don't look so stupid, no. Because everybody, you know, they we was up in arms. Hey, what you doing, John Khalil Mack? Are you kidding me? You got rid of Mark Cooper? You got rid Well, just like Jay said, if the picks pan out, he don't look so bad right now. You got a Mark Cooper? You just said he's the wide receiver under the most pressure. He's in limbo. We got Khalil Mack. What, what has he really impacted since signing that big deal? If you remember his first, what, three to four games with Chicago, he was a home record. Oh, he was tearing it up. But he didn't – somebody hit the mute button on that volume thus far, and he has not lived up to the contract. And I mean, and the big contract that is where he's like 40%, 50% of the doggone salary cap for the team, he's not living up to it. So I got to think, Khalil Mack don't get it done this year. Chicago got to be parting ways with him if he do not live up to the productivity of the contract that he signed. I agree 100% with this one. I think it's Khalil Mack. When you look at when that trade was originally made in that 2018 season, the Bears were the most dominant defense in football, and they were led by Khalil Mack. There was a whole lot of other pieces on that defense that contributed but Khalil Mack was that piece that they added that made them great, pushed them over the top. But then we look, we saw last season there was some, they had some exits. I, I, I thought immediately as soon as Vic Fangio left and Chuck McConnell came in, I thought that was going to significantly impact that defense. And they did take a step back. Now they were still good, but they were in no way the same defense. You also had Adrian Amos leave out to Green Bay, a couple other uh, exits from that defense. And consequently, the Bears as a team took a huge step back because they were 12 and four division winners in 2018. And last year they were, they were a mediocre team because, you know, offensively we knew what they were not much to write home about. So, and I think it's going to be more the same this year, unless that Bears defense ratchets it back up under Chuck Pagano. Yeah, I, I had Mac as well for this. You know, that now that we have that trade in the review mirror, the Raiders are going to get um, – they got Josh Jacobs from one of the picks, and now they're going to get uh, – see what Damon Arnett does, which we all thought was a reach at the time. But, hey, you know, we, the kid hasn't played a snap yet, so we'll see how it turns out. But like like Drink had mentioned too, you know, that, that trade's looking kind of suspect now that Mac is not living up to that price tag. I mean, eight and a half sacks it is not that impressive. 
as the second lowest number since his rookie year. And like you said, that defense, it went from monsters of the midway to meh the midway pretty quick. And it's, they're going to have a lot to prove because that defense, again, they have to carry the team. And, and Khalil Mack is the, he's the centerpiece. When you're paid that kind of money, you are the leader of that defense, whether you like it or not. So not only does he have his own personal stats and things like that to bring back up, but he's got to put that defense on his back and be a force that can carry the bears. Cause we know that offense, you know, Nick Foles or whoever else, they're not, that's not it. So, We'll wrap up with uh, Coach Jay. Who you got? Oh, you know I'm going. We're going out to L.A. And I ain't talking about Anthony Lynn. I'm talking about Sean McVay. Uh, Mr. You refer to him as Big Brain, Mr. Big Brain Offense, whatever it is. Listen, we're going to find we gonna find out something this year because uh, there ain't going to be no excuses about Todd Gurley and, it, and his knees don't work all that good and we don't, we don't know why he ain't getting the ball. Um, you got Cam Akers out there, so we'll see how, uh, how that develops. But uh, listen, the onus is going to be on Jerry Goff, and I'm going to need Sean McVay to go back there and uh, prop him on back up uh, to where he somewhat measures up to that contract, which it, it don't look. They restructured it, so you don't have to look. Your back ain't got to hurt all that much. You ain't got to prop him up to so much because you restructured the contract already, only after one season. But when I look at that division, we know San Francisco and Seattle going to be there, and Arizona. Arizona's coming a little bit. I don't know if it's this year, but it's a very real possibility. The Rams could be, you talk about the Packers being uh, off the rails in the, in the basement. Uh, the Rams could be joining them very quickly. It could, it could, and it could be this year, depending on how the Cardinals get there, get it together. But I'm just looking at them and I look at their, I look at the defense too. When you get, uh, when you get around Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey, um, and I know they brought back Michael Brockers, but really when you look outside of Donald and Ramsey, I don't, I don't even know what they got over there. I really don't. Um, so, uh, Jared Goff, it's going to be on Jared Goff. Jared Goff got to show us something, and we know what Jared Goff shows us. It's going to be because of Sean McVay. So, it's Sean McVay. Yeah, I went with Mr. Uh, Wood Pencil, Mr. Hostile Work Environment himself, uh, Matt Patricia. Um, here's the deal. Um, I, I think he, that goose is cooked to be perfectly honest, because, like, he's running around here just pissing people off left and right. Um, and he hasn't showed anything. Like, he, you – here's a guy with an elitist attitude, but a role-player performance. And not even a role-player performance. Like, I, I, I can't – maybe a practice squad performance. You know you know what I mean? Like, listen, you, you're running around here with your chest out. For what? What have you done? Who, who are you? Like – no, 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 no. We know who Bill is. If he want to have his chest out, that's one thing. Who are you? You have done nothing but sharpen pencils and find out different ways to put them behind your ear for no apparent reason. Because you ain't drawing up a game plan with it. So I don't even understand why you got it. You look like an architect getting ready to rebuild a bridge. That's what you look like. So uh, here's the deal. We're at the end of the road with Patricia. He's out of here. He might well have gone below the dust off that resume and get ready to be somebody's coordinator because I don't see him being the head coach at this time next year. Yeah, two, two great choices. Um, I, I should say Doug Marone, but we don't fire people around here. So I'll go with uh, Dan Quinn. Um, <laughs> this is a guy that he was on the hot seat all of last year. Atlanta, you remember they started off real, real bad, and then they kind of salvaged the season. They got a little bit of a streak, but uh, – 
you know, back-to-back seven to nine seasons. You got a, a quarterback really getting up there in age. Your your division's getting really competitive. You know, two really good teams. Then once once uh, Carolina figures it out, they'll be good too. Atlanta just they're kind of screaming rebuild to me and reset. So that's who I'm going with is uh, old Dan Quinn hadn't been the same since that Super Bowl second half. All right, guys. So to finish off with rapid reaction, a lot of topics, a little bit of time. Let's go drink. Let's roll, baby. Governors in New York, Texas, and California said their states will be ready for professional sports to resume in the near future. Describe your excitement for this news, Jay. This is absolutely outstanding news. We we need this. And listen, I absolutely expect this of Texas. Uh, let me go ahead and say New York, California, thank you. Thank you for getting on board with us. And uh, let, let's move on forward. Thank you very much. In an interview on the Uninterrupted YouTube channel, LeBron James said his best assets would have worked perfectly with Michael Jordan if they had been teammates. You agree? Oh, yeah, you know I do. Um, I absolutely do. Look, his, pers- his past first personality would have just melted with Michael Jordan seamlessly. And listen, here's the deal. If Michael Jordan did not feel like getting it done, if he was hurt, sick, whatever the case might be, we know LeBron James can score. So he could have picked up the scoring load a lot better than what Pippen did as well. So Look, he would have been the best Robin in NBA history, and it wouldn't even been close. Uh, Steelers running back James Conner would be a free agent after the 2020 season and said it would be hard to lead the city of Pittsburgh. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree with where he's coming from. You, uh, if, you, if you forget, uh, James Conner, he spent his college career at Pittsburgh. He went through the, uh, you know, the cancer that he had. Great comeback from there. And it's just a feel-good story, uh, what he's been through and how far he's come. And uh, I, I hope he's able to stick around with Pittsburgh. I really do. Uh, I think when he, uh, I think if he proves to be healthy this year, he could have a productive season. So we'll see. Clippers coach Doc Rivers says LeBron James could have been the best, the greatest football player ever if he'd have pursued an NFL career. Are you buying what Rivers is selling? I'm sorry, but I'm not. Listen, Doc. Listen, I, look. I would need to see LeBron in some pads on the field actually doing something before I give him these high ratings. And I think this stems from Michael Jordan going to play baseball and then people say if he would have kept playing. But Michael Jordan actually played baseball. So you can come up with that that, that analogy once you see him play. We've never seen LeBron play football. And listen, last time I checked, Doc Rivers is a basketball expert, not football. So I'm going to take that for what it's worth. Utah Jazz forward Bayan Bogdanovich underwent season-ending wrist surgery today. Your thoughts? Uh, it's a that's a big deal, and it's it's the timing of this is pretty interesting because I'm pretty sure, yeah, uh, basketball has been paw and pause for like over <clears> two months, and now this is happening. It kind of just I have further questions like what's going on with the Jazz. Or that I think there are more issues with Mitchell and Gobert than what we think, and this is just a sign that they know their season could be over pretty early in the playoffs regardless. Mm. The Big Three Basketball League has canceled the 2020 season due to the coronavirus pandemic and has shifted its focus to the 2021 season. Your reaction? Another one bites the dust. And another one. And another one. Another one bites the dust. But look, look listen. They're out of here for now. Hopefully they can, you know, stay afloat and come back for a 2021 season. Let's see if they they have enough, you know, equity finances to, you know, stay afloat. But listen, man, it happens to the the, the best of them right now. Uh, soon to be 47 year old pitcher Bartolo Colon 
hasn't pitched since September of 2018, but still hopes to pitch one more season. Do you see any team signing him? Uh, I I really don't. I feel like if it would have if it would have happened, it would have happened last season. I guess it, there could be some just catastrophic injuries that kick in, and they have to dig that deep into the you know the free agent pool. But uh, outside of that, I, I just don't really see it. Ole Miss and Southern Cal have set a home-and-home home series for 2025-2026 in college football. Does that intrigue you? Yo, wake me up when that happens. Cardinals cornerback Patrick Peterson said his current iteration of the Cardinals is the best team he's been a part of on paper. Do you agree? I don't, I, I don't know what he's talking about. But about five years ago that they were in the NFC Championship game against, you know, the Cam Newton MVP Panthers. I'm – and this team's, this team's better than that team. I don't, as you say, miss me with that one. Last one, an NFL on Fox Instagram poll set off a war of words between Saints wide receiver Michael Thomas and Dolphins wide receiver Devontae Parker. What'd you make of that drink? What do Devontae Parker have to say to Michael Thomas? Like, what? Can we get some success from you first? And then we'll come back to you when you get it. Like, get out of here. What are you talking about, Devontae Parker? Uh, all right. That concludes today's Drink of Wisdom. I'm Cody Ward. I'm Jay Wise. And I'm Nathan Drinker. And remember, make tomorrow better than today and make today better than yesterday. And you know what we're going to do. We're going to holler at you until next time, baby.